Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Richard Watson. Richard is the Futurist in Residence at the Entrepreneurship Center at the Judge School, Cambridge University. He's the author of Future Files, which has been published in 15 languages and the publisher of What's Next, an online report that documents new ideas and trends. His most recent book, it's Digital Versus Human, How We'll Live, Love, and Think in the Future. And I want to welcome Richard Watson to The Deep Dive. How are you? I'm very good, Philip. Thank you for having me on. You know, I always like to explain a little bit to the listeners how I find my guests, because that's a a question that I get quite surprisingly, quite commonly, and I never have a good answer. But I think the way I found your work is a pretty good illustration of sometimes how I find guests in that someone in my LinkedIn network, I'm I'm a big LinkedIn user, despite the fact that it's layout sucks, but it is actually quite effective for what it should be used for, which is connecting with people, making relationships. I've, I've had a, a lot of really good things come out of LinkedIn. And someone posted one of your maps, and it was a, a map that you'd worked on that was sort of, I'm not going to get the name quite right, but it was like this 50 years in the, in the future sort of layout of what the future could look like. And I think it, it resonated with me. I'm, I'm, I'm always very interested in, in how we think about horizon scanning and making maps. And I was like, oh, I'm going to reach out to that guy. And boom, here we are. <laughs> so that was the, you know, that was what kind of got us on this road. And so I wanted to highlight that. And, and though we're going to spend most of our time talking about digital versus human and, and the ideas that are represented in, in that book, I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on this notion of, of mapping and horizon scanning, particularly as it pertains to the future, or, or as I and, and many say, futures, right? There's not just one. So, you know, when you think about that type of work and, and laying those things out, there's, an, there's another one you posted again most, most recently, and I'm going to go through my notes so I make sure that I get it right, be paging, um, turning pages, is a map of current and future uncertainties, which I also took a, took a look at. I think that was like a couple months ago, maybe a few months ago. So long lead in, but mapping, horizon scanning, like why do you spend time there? Why do you think that's important? Just sort of lay it, lay it out a little bit for us. Well, I'm, I'm glad you sort of pick, picked up the maps. I mean, you're, you're far from the first one. I mean, I, you know, I spend time writing these books, which, you know, being brutally honest, very few people read and even fewer remember, but everyone seems to notice and remember these maps. And they came about, like most things, by accident. Um, I mean, the first thing I ever did wasn't really a map. It, it was an extinction timeline. It was a sort of slightly playful exploration of when things we're really familiar with might die out. And I think the first map started in about 2007. I was, I was writing a, a document, a Word document on global megatrends, which was sending me to sleep. I mean, it was, it, it was so boring. And there was no sort of narrative. There was You couldn't connect things. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I had a couple of young kids at the time. I got hold of their colored pencils and literally started doing a, a kind of subway map on the kitchen table and just posted it. And it, it got this pretty, pretty good reaction. I thought, well, okay. And then I did another one a year later, which was ridiculously complicated, which people really, really, really liked. And I don't know quite where they come from. I mean, my, my mother was an art teacher. My, my father was a physicist. And there's a sort of symbiosis there, potentially. And as you correctly said earlier on, they are not maps of the future. They are maps of futures. They are they are potential routes of travel and destinations for, dis, for discussion. And they have a sort of narrative feel. They're visually quite interesting, I think. And they normally contain jokes as well. I mean, kind of everything I do pretty much has the odd joke in it, because I think you can't take this stuff too seriously. I mean, the, the, the slightly alarming thing, though, is in the last couple of years, the stuff that was meant as a joke has actually become a reality. And, you know, I, I don't know where you go with that in the future. But um, I'm kind of nearing the end of it because I can't do any more subway maps, although I've 
I'm just working one, on one at the moment, which is the sort of history and future of genomics, which doesn't look anything like a subway map. So there are, and I did a periodic table. I did, a, I don't know if you saw it, but I did a table of disrupt, 100 disruptive technologies that looks like a periodic table. So they're not all colored lines. But um, I, I just really like drawing them. I find it quite meditative to do them. You can connect things. I think, you know, I, I quite, I'm quite into how things look. So I like the idea. They're not exactly things of beauty, but they are, I think they're interesting to look at. And they they definitely resonate with people. I've never quite got to grips with why. I think it's possibly because we're we're sort of more and more visual. You know, we've moved from the word to the image. And again, there's a sort of narrative feel to them. So that's possibly what attracts people. Beyond that, I just have no idea. I think it's it's interesting because your one's background does really influence their relationship to things. And, you know, as as a native New Yorker, we, we talked a little bit about that at, at before we started recording. You know, I, I think the first map that I could think of really being significant in my life was a New York City subway map. And it's it's a map that I that I refer to a lot when I do presentations and talks because it's it's a it's a map that I think, and, and others can do this, but it's a map that, that very succinctly illustrates the importance of, of culture, which sort of leads leads into my my next my next sort of, of thought in that very famously, um, a map is not the territory. And my addendum to that when I'm when I'm kind of people are asking me to talk to them about things like culture, is that the the territory is culture, right? It's the map gives us data points but it doesn't tell us like what's going on. There's no depth to the underneath of, of the map, right? Like you look at a New York City subway map and see, oh, Houston Street, West 4th, you know, 14th, 23rd, on and on and on. But what's the what's happening underneath at any one of those particular data points is sort of the territory, right? That's, that's what matters. And like you're doing a, a different type of mapping, right? But it is sometimes visually connected to the notion of a, of a subway map to tube, all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious how you integrate or think about the territory underneath some of these ideas, because I think the visual notion of them is, is very striking. And they, from what I've seen of them, I'm always like looking to go even deeper, right? Like if you can make them 3d. So I, I wonder if you think about that and how, and how you do. I, I have thought of that. I've thought of, uh, in fact, there was one map I did with, I used to work at the uh, technology foresight practice at Imperial College, and we we did a map of the future of urban air. And it was it was a flat map graphic, but we also did a sort of animated version where you could click on a data point and it would pull up information. So you could kind of go down that rabbit hole. But they are, they are crying out for that. I mean, I did another one that looks like a treasure map, an old, an old treasure map, and you, you just want to sort of get into it. But they're they're really, I mean, I, first of all, I suppose, as, as you sort of touched on there, they're sort of the broader landscape. And you can actually take it in. Being on a single sheet of paper, you can actually look at the whole, whereas you can't look at the whole of a Word document or the whole of a book. But it, it kind of alludes to a broader landscape. And I suppose what, what they really are, are pieces of provocation. I mean, they are intended to create some kind of discussion. And that and that's why, to some extent, you need to put things on that are a little bit provocative, because you want people to sort of slightly violently react about, to things. So th the way they tend to work in a very simplistic way is that the middle of things, this isn't always true, but generally the middle of things is now. And as you sort of radiate outwards, you go into different futures and it becomes more provocative. And the, the, the one I think you were referring to, which was the trends and technology timeline out to 2050, the sort of the top left-hand corner has got a sort of kind of where Zuckerberg's going. We, you know, we've got people trusting machines more than people, preferring the company of machines more to people. I think we might have got sex robots on there somewhere, although that might have been on the table of disruptive technologies. They're, they're, they're there to try and get some kind of reaction. And the other thing I found really interesting is when, when making these things, if I'm working with, in an office environment, is you put the rough up on on a wall, possibly just as a series of post-it notes, and people walk by going, "Oh, what's you know, first of all is what's this?" And then they go, "Oh, okay. Oh, well, why is that there? Oh, and why is that there and not there?" You know, they they they're interactive without being interactive in a funny kind of way. I mean, whether I'm sort of nearing the end of this, I may have exhausted this particular seam of of sort of buried treasure. But um, again, people keep saying, "You know, when's the next one? What's going what's going to be on it?" And um, they have actually also been. The, I mean, the one from that's out to 2050 that was published, I think, in January 
2017, yeah, January, February 2017, there's some global game changes at the bottom. And it's it's quite interesting looking at that now because we've got global pandemic on there. We've got rapidly rising, I think it's US interest rates, certainly interest rates. Uh, we've got inflation running at more than 10%. We've got Russian expansionism. There's some there's some quite interesting stuff on there, actually, that, that seems to have come true. Although that that possibly takes us into another sort of discussion about what's true. You know, how do you how do you define true? You know, there's stuff, load of stuff on there that hasn't come true as well, or is at the moment phenomenally wrong. So, but then again, it's not, it's not really, I'm not trying to predict as such. Again, I'm I'm trying to use prediction to provoke people. And as you say, there's not just one future, there are there are many futures. And actually, the funniest one was um I did a risk radar, which is a kind of like a one of those radars you get on ships and submarines, which is a sort of green, you know, the when they go beep, beep, beep. And I plotted, yeah. <laughs> I plotted this actually. I, I got involved with a, a government workshop on extreme risks back in 2015, which is where my knowledge of pandemics came from, amongst other things. And I plotted um, some of the stuff from the workshop, I and mean, the stuff you can't talk about, but um, I plotted impact against probability. And um, in the rough, I had Trump being president. And I thought, yeah, nah, that's just never going to happen. And, and if it does happen, you know, it dates the map. So I, I took him off, and I was, I was looking for a sort of slightly jokey thing because the rest of the map is very serious and deeply depressing so i needed a bit of levity on it and i put on kim kardashian running for president and about you know three six months later kanye decides he might run and again this is an example of, of sort of truth becoming weirder than fiction really and you can't keep up with it it's it's quite bizarre and there's a lot of there's a lot of absurdity right like some things can seem absurd some things can seem far-fetched and i think this sort of work lends itself to, like you said, this sort of idea of of predictions. But we're also living in in a world that is, I think, complex, which implies that there needs to be a certain level of uncertainty. That there is a certain level of uncertainty. What what I found in in my work, and I'm and I'm curious about your thoughts on this as it pertains to prediction. And I do want to get back to the absurdity of some things. Is you know, I, I come from a trading background. I, I used to work on, on Wall Street. Again, a, another fact that listeners are probably tired of, but it, it pertains to this point because so much of managing risk from a trade from a position of being a trader is how you're managing and in some ways trying to negate uncertainty, right? For any particular trade that you're in, you're trying to make the outcome to be as certain, i.e. as profitable as you can. And I found that as I've moved away from that world and gone into the work that I do now, which is focused on culture and strategy, that many organizations that work with me are looking for that same predictive nature. So they're asking me questions around culture in a manner in which they want me to predict it so they can have outcomes that are more profitable. Whereas I'm trying to get them to think through uncertainty as a certainty <laughs> and so therefore to be flexible right and to think through multiple futures whereas they want a singular future um so i'm curious what you what you think about that oh that's that's a rich theme to mine um okay so the to my mind the only thing that you can say with any certainty about the distant future is that it's uncertain which logically implies multiple futures in the wings but you know potentially unfolding the the uh, the sort of complexity volatility thing. I mean, this is this is. I mean, it's always been unpredictable, right? Or, or, although some things are are predictable. I mean, demographics is pretty dead set predictable. I mean, we know what the composition of North America, Europe, Japan is going to be in thirty years time because those kind of people are already there. And yes, we could have a really serious pandemic or World War Three that would change that, or massive changes to immigration policy. But it's it's pretty dead set as is geology, geography, and, and and I would argue the psychology of nations, you know, informed by their history. So, you know, we you know, there was a great book, I think it was called The Next Hundred Years by George Freeman, who's a US strategist, uh, military strategist. And he, he was talking about Russia um, having this psychology based on their past. And it was all about the embarrassment of losing their empire and they wanting the, their sphere of influence back, which has played out quite well. And it, this reminds me of the the idea of VUCA, which came out of the U.S. Department of Defense in 1989, which was used to describe the geopolitical environment following the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. That's it. 
which I think perfectly describes the the environment we're in right now. And but the problem, I mean, it's always been reasonably very uncertain and reasonably volatile. The difference, I guess, and this was something I think it was Douglas Rushcroft wrote about in the book Present Shock. It's it all feels like it's come at once, and I think that's coming off the connectivity piece. So this, to some extent, this was always going on. We just never knew about it. Whereas you can't escape from this stuff now. And I think one of the, the fundamental problems we've got these days is we are too connected. And that is sort of driving a sort of an anxiety at, at, at some level. But it, but it is it is ludicrously absurd now. I mean, we, we have got things going on that you just, if you'd said them five, 10 years ago, you'd, you'd have been put in the straitjacket practically. I mean, you know, there's, there's some pretty weird stuff. I mean, I was, you know, we had early pandemic. I remember talking to somebody and we, we Trump was in office. We got the pandemic had started and I was struggling a bit. You know, I didn't have an issue with, with Trump being president. I didn't have an issue with the pandemic, but the two together were pretty challenging. And there was, there was a time during that period when we had, there was a sort of, it wasn't a rogue asteroid because it wasn't coming anywhere near us, but it was a sort of, it wasn't that far away. And there was a plague of locusts going on in Africa. And you think, what, you know, what is out there that could possibly surprise me anymore? And, and the only thing I could think of was aliens. I mean, I just, or, or you find some sort of intelligent life on another planet or get a message from an, I just could not think of anything more absurd than the way things were going. But I, again, I think that's coming off a sort of um, a connectivity. But it's, it's also possibly the fact that simultaneously, the the sort of not the bedrock, but the sort of the, the traditional anchor points have become eroded or the anchors sort of work loose. So, you know, work is less less secure and certain than it used to be. So are relationships. Gender is is fluid now. Religion is 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 uns is was not uncertain, but it's kind of it's come untethered. There's all these sort of things that we thought we knew, we thought were sort of pretty solid, that turn out not to be that solid. And simultaneously, you've arguably got the decline of the West, which I'm not necessarily buying that argument, but it's it's an argument, and that's possibly what's sort of um, making some people quite anxious. Although, you know, it's not everybody. I mean, it's it's people of a certain age, primarily in certain geographies. So, I mean, I think a lot of younger people don't don't suffer from the anxiety that older people suffer from. I think if you are in China, you are probably inherently more optimistic than if you are in, I don't know, northern France, Japan or, or wherever. So the, you, you can't say, you know, I think, again, that, coming back to an earlier point you made, people sort of think of the future as this singular place we're heading to. And that, that that's a sort of good thing in a sense. Another reason I think we've got a lot of anxiety around is, is back in the day, and I don't know when back in the day was, but probably pre-2000 or maybe pre-9-11. I think most people had, a, in the West anyway, they had a pretty clear idea of what the future was going to look like. You know, faster, lots of batteries, skyscrapers, whatever. And th there was a sort of vision there and it had an attached narrative and that made people feel sort of secure in a sense. And that, that all sort of evaporated after 9-11, global financial crash, you know, and climate change, a, a bunch of other stuff, and you know, even if even if that map, that narrative was was delusional, there was still something you were you were looking at. And now that there isn't really a vision being articulated, apart from out of the likes of Silicon Valley. So again, that that makes people a little a little bit uncomfortable. But the, the and I just finished this point that the you know the future has never been a singular place. It's not like it's somewhere you get to, you arrive there, and it stays the same. That's ludicrous. It's you never get there. It's all and it's always evolving. And the really positive message is you can always change it. There was that dreadful film, although it's actually quite good, Tomorrowland with George Clooney. And it makes this point that oh, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> cheesy, but it's got some great lines. And one of them from memory is something like, you know, the more you think about it, the more you can change it. You know, and if you don't like the direction of things, get involved change it. it there, are, there are some things that are pretty set. There are quite a lot of things you can't influence, but there are a hell of a lot of things you can influence. I mean, that's the history of civilization, right? There were certain things we didn't like, we changed them. So that that's that's always been the case. And I think that that gives us a, a chance because I want to I want to I don't want to switch gears, but I want to pick up on a, on a point you made sort of at the, at the earlier part of that. In you know, when I think about the future and futures, one of the things that often I emphasize to folks is, and this is probably history nerd stuff, is history is is pretty helpful when it when it comes to understanding potential futures, though not exclusively, right? Again, kind of a Wall Street thing, past results are no indication of of future returns, right? Every disclaimer on on any prospectus you will you will ever see. But I do think the the data points of where we start are reflecting 
is is always interesting. And so even with the mentioning of of Russia, right? And I am by no means a, a scholar on Russian history. So this is going to be rife with generalizations, <laughs> but I'm going to use it for the for the purposes of this conversation in in the sense that and I, and I haven't read the book that you mentioned, but what I have seen as a as a student of sort of America and Americanisms is Russia to us as a historical place that we think about is 1917, you know, with the with the Russian Revolution that that takes a imperial monarchy and, and turns it into a communist state. Then it kind of lulls. Then we have World War II, you know, then it's like Stalin. And then it's the Cold War, right? And and all of the effects of that. So when when people talk about this sort of like the way a country is, I'm like, we're, we're sort of erasing that, I don't know, three to 400 years when Russia was an imperial monarchy, much like the rest of Europe, right? Like it had kings and queens, you know, czars and all that kind of stuff. But it, it looked like every other place in Europe, not like that, say, does England and Sweden and France and Spain were all the same, but their systems of government were somewhat similar, right? Like there's that famous picture when you look at like, Nicholas, the czar Nicholas II, and then you look at like, I think like the king of England, like George V, like they're cousins, right? Like they used to inbreed and all that kind of weird shit and they look like twins. <laughs> and, you know, so I say all that to say that how do we make these demarcations as we look past to sort of make an argument about the future, right? Because someone can make a, you know, Russia lost its empire argument and the collapse of the, of the, Soviet Union. And so they're this way. Right. And I think if you go back far enough, you'd be like, well, they're Catherine the Great. Maybe they're this way. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I don't know the answers to that, but I'm curious as to how our present or near past shape our future when we pick our jumping off points. So I'm just using Russia as an example. You could take it anywhere. <laughs> we, we haven't even got into that sort of philosophical discussion of what the future actually means. Is it in five seconds time or in a millisecond or is it 50 years? But I mean, I think history is incredibly important. It, I mean, it doesn't, it sort of echoes a bit. And I think it it, it creates broad context. You can sometimes see patterns. I th and I think historians make very good futurists because they've, they've just got this broad sweep. And um, you, you can extrapolate certain things. And I, I mean, back to that point about nations having psychologies much like individuals, which was with George Friedman. So, I, I, you know, if I'm looking at, you know, the future of money, the, f the first thing I'd do is start with the inception of money. Where did it come from? Why did it exist? Et cetera, et cetera. And I, I find that incredibly, well, maybe it's just interesting, but I also find it very, very uh, useful. The danger you have to be aware of, though, is when most people talk about the future, they they do Thing that's very hard not to do, which they extrapolate in a very sort of linear manner from, from recent data, and in particular from personal past experience. And that's where it tends to go wrong. I mean, you could get away with that in the shorter term, you know, two, three, five years, you might get away with that, you might even get away with it out to 10. But if you start doing that out 15, 20 years, you're almost certainly going to make a horrible mistake. And, and also the other, the other classic mistake people make is, you know, that any prediction about the future tends to have a quite a deep hidden assumption in it, which, you know, is not obvious, which is why, you know, scenario thinking is, is quite a nice way of, of sort of challenging that. But I, I don't know what, I don't know why. I, I mean, I really, really like looking at the history of stuff. I find it, you know, really, really fascinating. I mean, the other thing I do is I, I, can't, I, don't, I wouldn't say I collect, but I've got a collection of old books about the future going back to, oh my God, um, late 1800s. What was that book? Bellamy. What was, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, he's looking back from 2000 to the late 1800s. I've got, you know, a book written about 2000s from 1914 on the eve of the, the First World War. I've got an original of Future Shock. I've got books from the 70s about the 2000s. And it's it's really interesting to go through those and kind of see what mistakes they make. Um, I mean, I'm kind of behind with that. I've got about four books on 2020, which I haven't read yet, which I'm dying to read. See if any, I, I, I think they probably got some stuff really right and some stuff really wrong. But I'm, I'm kind of, I think, you know, the, the game here, you're not trying to get the future 100% right, not, not even close. I mean, that is completely delusional and impossible. You, you are trying to be less wrong. You're trying to avoid getting it, you know, 100% wrong and making a major error. And I think the more you think about it, you know, the, the better your hit rate's going to be. And also you need to sort of place different bets on things. And, and again, but I, I keep coming back to this idea of preferred futures, which is rather than worry about 
what the future is going to be like and how you're going to respond, which strikes me as quite a sort of negative, passive, reactionary mindset. You know, we need to spend more time thinking about what we we want the future to look like for ourselves, our kids, our grandkids, and then and then actually start doing something about that, which is a sort of theme that I, I sort of end one of my well, digital versus human. That kind of is kind of where that ends, actually, is, is saying like we, we need to have this discussion. We need a strategy for the human race over the next century or this century, particularly in the light of AI, if that takes off as some people expect. And that there isn't that much of that around at the moment. And that also segues maybe into science fiction, which I'm I'm a big fan of, um, mainly film rather than books, but I like books too, which is, you know, it's articulating current anxieties and concerns most of the time, although most of it tends to be quite dystopian. I mean, funny enough, I'm actually, I've hopefully I've got a contract coming through on a book about the future for the kids, which is there's no dystopia in it. It's entirely positive. I think younger kids, you know, I don't know, sort of eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 have been through a bit of a rough patch over the last two or three years. And they need, they need some positive stuff. I mean, they've had pandemics, they've had wars, They've got, got climate change. You know, you know those sort of sci-fi books, a bit like Star, the original Star Trek, you know, the, or those those books of the future you used to get in the late 70s, which was all dinner at a pill and jetpacks and flying cars. We need a bit more of that positivity, I think, going forward. Yeah, I I, I think there's, I, I would agree with that. I, I think we need some some hope and joy. These are these are active, active things. And I think that gives us a, ch- a chance to segue more into you know the book, right? And and this this conversation. Um, I, I will say one thing around us absurdity before we do that is, you know, and and this is where the culture piece always kind of sticks up to me. I re- I remember in the same way that Trump as a as a human, a caricature of a of a person, seemed impossible to a, a lot of a, a lot of people, or, or at the very least, highly unlikely. I think if most people looked at the Republican nom- potential nominees. There were a ton of them at the time. He he was not the guy initially out the gate that people would have put a lot of money on, right? But uh, many people did, right? Like that's how that's how it worked. So there there was something going on there. But I I put him as like a, a mirror image, like sort of a, a doofus meandering Neanderthal mirror image of an Obama, not from a policy perspective, but uh, a black president was something I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And I was born in 1972. So I, you know, I, I, there was no way, right? Like if you had asked me to put money on it, I would have been like, nah, not in America. Right. And, and, and the reason why I brought up the culture piece is because there's a, a comedy show or a comedy special called The Kings of Comedy, and it has several comedians, Cedric the Entertainer, D.L. Hughley, um, Bernie Mac, and um, Steve Harvey. And this was like a huge concert film, came out in like 1998, something like that. And long story short, I think it was Cedric the Entertainer goes, he does an entire bit, it's either him or D.L. Hughley, that do an entire bit on why we'll never have a Black president. And then fast forward, not even... 10 years and we have one, <laughs> right? Like, so once that happened, I knew anything could happen. <laughs> so Trump, Trump was not as much of a surprise to me because I'd, I'd already seen the impossible. So I, I say that to say that sometimes our frames of what is possible, probable, or likely could influence what we think is possible, probable, or likely because we're, we're rotating in a different axis, right? Where I think like a lot of white people, and I'm generalizing, if you ask them, oh, do you think America will, could have a white, a black president? They would have said, yes, because they're all good liberals and they want to believe in like, America's better today than it was yesterday. Whereas like me, I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> right? Like, I don't believe that shit. <laughs> so no, hell no, that's not going to happen. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, uh, you mentioned probable and possible. I mean, one of the sort of little tools I use now and again is getting people to sort of look at look at the present and what are the sort of key things going on. And it's important to get get into the sort of deep drivers. So it's not just Trump. It's it's what's created Trump. And, you know, I mean, I, you can take out Trump. The thing that created him, I think, is still there. And then you get into sort of probable futures, which I, I tend to, you know, let's let's say we're looking at 2030. You know, it's got to have at least a 50% ch- chance of happening. We think it's going to have at least a 50% chance of happening by 2030. That's the probable future. That's the expected future. And that's what everyone sort of focuses on. But then you also have to sort of push it. You have to look at, well, what's what's possible? You know, what's not impossible by 2030? Or, you know, maybe you call that preposterous future. And I think we've, we've become more attuned and alert 
to this stuff that's not actually impossible. And then then maybe around the fringe we have preferred, which is, yeah, but taking all that on, on board, what is it that we actually want to happen? And you, you start having having that discussion. But I think we are we are sort of more, yeah, we're more attuned to the sort of the crazy weird stuff now. Although it's it's possibly gone a little bit too far, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So digital versus human, right? Like I I, I thought the book has like a, a ton of really great ideas and, and like I said, provocations, which I think is a is a wonderful word to describe this type of work, right? It, it should make you pause as you read or however you're in you're, you know, moving with with the work and kind of say, huh, think about it, agree, disagree to what extent that happens. Where does it lend you to want to do more work, find out more about a particular topic? So I think it it does all of that in, in an exceedingly impressive fashion. And so I want to start off with a question that you pose and you and you and you mentioned it a little earlier. You know, what does the future mean to you? Right. Like it's a it's a word that carries a, a lot of weight by its nature. Right. So as it as I throw that out to you, and, and like I said, it's a very early provocation in, in the book. I think that's a good way to kind of start our conversation about this this digital versus human dichotomy. I mean, I can answer that very specifically. I have a, I have a good friend of mine, Lavi Tidar, who's a proper, proper writer, you know, not like me. He, he writes really, he likes really good <laughs> science fiction. And I, I had this discussion in a pub or in a bar with, with him once about, you know, what, how, as a writer, as a fellow writer, how do you define the future? And his, his instant reaction was, well, it's when things start to get weird, to which I said, well, that's kind of now, isn't it? Funny if I, I took him to um, a government workshop once to try and stretch their thinking, which was a disaster because, first of all, on the, on the way down to this workshop, he, I gave him a lift and we had a bet as who was going to bring up aliens first in a really serious government workshop. And he was he was in there in 30 seconds. But coming home, I said, well, hey, Levy, how did... Aliens generally or aliens the movie? No, generally, aliens generally. <laughs> I said, we're coming back from this <laughs> workshop, which was, a, it, it was Ministry of Defense. It was pretty serious. I said, hey, Lavi, that was fun, wasn't it? How did you find it? He said, oh, I couldn't cope with it. You know, you, you were all talking about 30 years out. I, I can't even, I can't cope with it unless it's 200 plus. So, I mean, I, I, my, my sweet spot is I quite like sort of five to 15 years. I think, I think under, under five, it's boring. It's just, I, there's all, I, always, I quite often say the present has a gravitational pull. And it's bringing you back to tomorrow, literally tomorrow or today. And you just end up with variations of now if you're not careful. So you have to pitch it really 10, 15 years out to try and escape that gravitational pull of the present. And then the discussion starts getting getting quite interesting. So, yeah, I, I like sort of 10 to 15 years, something like that. But I'm, I'm in this sort of weird area because I'm not really writing about trends, but I'm not writing science fiction either. I mean, I don't know what I'm writing, really. I mean, somebody that that, <laughs> that was quite smart said, actually, Richard, you know, you know, you're a complete fraud, aren't you? And I said, uh, yeah, how? Yeah, obviously, but how? Uh, I said, well, you, you know, you're not... <laughs> Be more specific. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many so many things. He said, you don't write about the future at all. I said, oh, that's interesting. You're, you're absolutely right, because most of the books I've written are actually about now. They've just got this sort of... And I'm using future as as sort of subterfuge to get people to think about what they're doing right now. So, you know, an example might be, and it's not it's not such a big thing now, but you know, back in 2010 or something, I was I was concerned about the addictive nature of social media and smartphones and all the rest of it, which nobody else was particularly interested in at the moment. But that that wasn't about the future. I mean, it was about the future because I was I was sort of you know, speculating, but I was very much giving examples of, of, of what I've seen, you know, this morning, I, you know, I go out to lunch and I see a couple just glued to their phones and not talking to each other, you know, that's 10 years ago. So I, a lot of it isn't really about the future. I'm just using the future as an excuse to engage people in, in conversations about what's, what's real, what's actually real. That's an awkward word, isn't it? What's important to them? I should, should we say what the their values and, and, all, and all that kind of stuff? You know, understanding that, I, I found it really interesting, like even the the title of the book, right? The the digital versus human, because I'm I'm always really curious about what we stage one against the against the other, because it it implies, and I'm not saying you implied this, but it implies that we're making a choice, right? That it's either we're human in some way in which we define that, right? It's not just our corporal form, but it's all the things that we would say is human versus this digital space, which we're implying it's something 
wholly different and separable from ourselves, right? So I'm curious how you framed it that way. Is that a, a frame that is effective because it implies, again, either or, whereas like perhaps there's a way in which these things blend and meld together? So I'm curious about that. No, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. It, well, it was it was deliberately provocative to grab people's attention. It's 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's it implies it's binary. It's one or the other, or it's it's us versus them, or something. And I kind of wanted to to get the feel of of a sort of looming battle. And I think there is a looming battle going on. I mean, I mean, obviously, hopefully, the future is both. Right? It's digital and human. We work together. You know, AI is great at stuff. We're really awful at, and vice versa. It also raises the question of, and this is a huge thing, is, is well, what is human? You know, is there anything special about us as a species? Is there anything an advanced, you know, general AI, broad AI, strong AI can't do? Which, and that's not an easy question to answer, but, you know, I'm, I'm very much on, on, on the side of the humans. And, and, and funny, if I think one of the things about really strong trends is I, th I think you tend to get counter trends. It's almost sort of Newtonian force stuff. It's, you know, the, the more powerful a trend is, more resistance seems to build up against it generally in the opposite direction. And it's, it rarely topples the existing trend, but it's a sort of balancing force. So, you know, globalization, localization, fast food, slow food. And we're begin I'm beginning to see as a sort of weak signal-y thing, there's, or there's anomalous behavior where, you know, this almost the rise of the human. There was that other, actually, I think it was Rushcroft again, Team Human, that book. And I, there's, there's a clothing brand from Bathing Ape or something called Human or something. And I've seen signs, you know, sandwiches made by humans or whatever. And and we are in a in a process of kind of rebalancing the pendulism. The, the problem is, I think with a lot of this stuff, the, the pendulism goes way off to the right and then it flies back to the left. It, it takes quite a while for it to sort of settle to a nice bit of equilibrium in the middle. But yeah, it, it was mainly a, a device to, to grab people's attention. But I think it is, there is genuinely, I'm not sure it's a war, but it might be going on. And it, it reminds me of a, a great book, I, a bit of a phone book, but a great book I, I read recently, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Zuboff. Yep, good book. And, you know, every, everyone's aware of, of, I mean, climate is is a bit of an issue. I mean, I have some issues, I have some not issues, yeah, I have some issues with the way people are framing it and what's what's likely to happen and all the rest of it, which we can get into if you want. But you know, and it's 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 a problem, but I think it's a solvable problem, although some people are going to suffer. Most people will be okay. We, we will adapt. That's what humans, that's something that we're very good at as humans, is adapting one way or another. But the way that Zuboff describes describes surveillance capitalism, I think is quite quite interesting because she she talks about sort of, you know, industrial capitalism as, you know, you you dig stuff out of the ground, creating incredible environmental damage. You make shit, you sell it to people, and a lot of that stuff they don't need, they use it up and they throw it back in the ground as landfill. That's and, and to hell with the consequences. It's just about the maximization of profit. And that, then the sort of the new form of capitalism, which is this, you know, what she calls surveillance capitalism or digital capitalism, is we are extracting things from people's heads and screw the cost, you know? And I and I generally don't think, I mean, it's only a scenario, right? She's not necessarily right, but I do think. There's a great danger of what's going on with with big tech of 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 what they're trying to do, which is it's not just about you know invasions of privacy and and grabbing information about us, harvesting our data and and sending us personal ads. It's about ultimately potentially changing human behavior at scale. So it is if you take this to an absolute extreme position, it's the end of human agency, freedom, privacy. And all the rest of it, all all for the sake of profit for a handful of companies, and that that's a sort of existential crisis if ever there was one. Although most people are barely aware that this might might be going on. I'm not saying it is going on, but it might be going on. And I wanted to get into that kind of site standoff, if you like. And I'm I'm obviously clearly on on the side of the humans here. And you know, technology has its uses. I'm no luddite. I'm not. Although there's an interesting thing to get into the history of the Luddites, you know, I don't think the Luddite, I think the Luddites are actually quite misunderstood. I don't think they were necessarily. Oh, they're completely. I refer to myself as a Luddite all the time. They're completely misunderstood. But they're not. <laughs> my understanding, and it could be incredibly wrong, is my understanding is they were not anti-technology per se. Not at they all. They used the destruction of te the technology of the time as a bargaining tool to make a point. Turns out they lost. And and again, that's a bit binary. I mean, you know, a lot of tech is really, really useful. It's a, it's about balance. It's about the ethics surrounding this kind of stuff. It's the fact that a lot of this stuff is hidden and we don't know what's going on, and it's not. It's a bit opaque. So that's kind. Of, the the book is a to some extent about about that battle. And you know, I I think it's also it it opens up a bunch of questions, which which are going to take us all over the place. But I, I do want to jump on on this point because it's I would take it to a 
well, what is technology, right? Like, I, I think we're, again, we're we're so, when I say we, I'm talking about the way in which we're managing our, our expectations about our present, near present and future. Technology, I think in, in my lifetime, kind of, kind of the age of personal computing, gaming, everything we've kind of come to know as, as someone born in 1972, I've kind of lived with that arc, right? And, and those in this sort of demographic. And it is, technology has, has come to be about these things, right? These electronic, digital, computer, whatever type of word you want to use to lump together to all the things that we're talking about, screens and phones and extensions of that and adjacencies to those things. And then I'll say, well, okay, yeah, that's kind of all technology, but there's a highly technical and specialized world of knowledge that comes from agriculture and having clean air and clean and clean water that people don't really think about when they think about technology, right? But they wouldn't say like, oh, I'm going into something technical and you hear farming. But the the growing of of food is incredibly technical. It's incredibly scientific to what extent, again, we want to use a word that's kind of loaded. So I'm I'm curious about how we use and break down even the base of where we're starting to start to introduce other ways of of tackling it. And so my my prompt after I say all that is like I wrote down very in one of my corners, one of my margins, you know, future as technology versus here's that word versus future as justice, right? Like however we capture that, like why are why when we think about technology, the conversation the future, the tech, the conversation is these tools, these gadgets, these things? Why is it not about our our ethics, our morality, how we're building a world that works for, for people, right? Like it, it seems like, and I'm saying your book does this, but it seems like we engage, even surveillance capitalism engages with, you know, extraction and exploitation are a default. Now we're just talking about how in which it's going, that exploitation and extraction will manifest itself. And what I would love to think about and we not have time for all this, but what I'm offering is that like, why are we not thinking about is extraction a default? Is exploitation a default? If so, why? If not, then what's the alternative, right? Sort of a Ursula Le Guin kind of way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, what is technology? I mean, everyone everyone sort of tends to, th I mean, there's that great Douglas Adams quote I used at the beginning of the book, and I don't, I don't, I don't actually remember it, but back to paraphrase, it's anything that's new. Anything that's sort of been invented since you were born, kind of thing. Um, I also, by the way, I love that quote Cumber who said it, that technology is anything that doesn't work properly yet, which I, I do kind of like that. I mean, you know, tech is, you know, is the wheel. It's shoes. It's clothes. It's watches. It's, you know, it's paper. Paper, for God's sake, is technology. It's supremely clever technology, which is why it refuses to go away. By the way, although there is a, there is a sort of yeah, a sundial. There's, yeah, there's a slice of Silicon Valley that worries me, and it's it's usually young white guys that are a bit on the spectrum. To be fair, and and they they are inventing the future for all the rest of us, and it, it, it suits them, but it doesn't necessarily suit us. Actually, that's that's the that's the fundamental problem. I mean, I think there's there's kind of three scenarios really. There's there's this, there's a scenario because the, the fundamental problem is a lot of this tech, particularly AI, is. I mean, I, I I don't really buy into this. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, not what's the what's the word that means either rapid growth or double exponential. So I looked at this exponential argument, and and it it doesn't really stack up actually. If if you if you define it as doubling, although within AI and computing it kind of does. And the problem is this stuff is moving so fast, and our brains. It's that great quote I, again. I use it. E.O. Wilson, who died quite recently, the uh, American evolutionary biologist, the ant guy, in which from memory, what did he say? He said we've got the brains of the Paleolithic, the institutions of the medieval and technology of the gods and he wasn't being complimentary there there's a there's a really bad tension there right so we've got this technology accelerating and and, and may you know go beyond us and we we're struggling with that because we've still got these paleolithic brains that i mean i know they're plastic but the, the, the basic architecture hasn't changed since we crawled out of a cave so we struggled with this a bit and there are three scenarios there's there's a there's we integrate this stuff into our bodies as a way of, of dealing with it. So this is Musk's, what is he called? Is that the neural lace or something? You know, we literally have computers in our heads, not just, you know, pacemakers, but we've actually got computers in our heads interacting with this stuff. So we, we it's not digital versus human. It's literally the two come together and there's no separation. That's one scenario. There's a scenario which is it just gets too much and we, we push back 
And that's a bit of an unlikely scenario. But, you know, we have invented stuff in the past where we've not used it. And I'm thinking, well, chemical biological weapons is a, is a bit, maybe that's not a great example. Nuclear at the, at the moment is a good example of something we've invented and we've decided not to use it. Um, and then there's another one, which is this idea that, hey, if we could just figure out human consciousness and we just download, you know, our, our download ourselves into sort of some sort of digital file and we're free of these encumbrances known as the body, which, you know, that, again, it makes a lot of sense if you're a bit on the spectrum. I think the rest of us quite like our physical bodies, actually. But those are kind of the I, I struggle to think of a sort of fourth scenario there to some extent. But, um, you know, what you know, what is technology and what I think this is the, the other thing is technology is is not an end point. It's a tool. You know, it is used to do something. And there is not really the discussion at the moment about well, what are we trying to do? Who are we trying to be? Where are we trying to go? That's the discussion. And how does tech fit into this? How does AI fit into this? And this, we've got a lot of stuff around the future at the moment. Again, it tends to be Silicon Valley. That, well, China's coming into play a bit, really, on this of, of, you know, technological determinism, if you want to call it that, that this is the only future and it's inevitable. And I said, well, no, it isn't. You know, we're still in charge of this stuff. We can decide if we want to use it or not or how to how to use it. So I think that the ethical questions surrounding technology, everything from AI to genomics to anything else, is going to become increasingly important. And, you know, I, I, I went to some conferences at Cambridge on, on AI a few years ago, and the entire discussion was, it was 75% how can we do this? 25% hell, what if this goes wrong? There were, until the end, there was no discussion about, yeah, but why might we want to do this? And eventually somebody answered the question, which and it's a good answer, which is, well, we're running out of humans. And that's true, actually. It's a bit counterintuitive. But in most of the world, if you look at the demographics, the, we are the fertility rate is below the replacement level. So longer term, particularly if you start looking mid-century onwards, most countries' populations go into decline. And that's not sort of good from a from a sort of economic productivity point of view. And, you know, I think that's fundamentally what Japan is is after is, you know, that's why they're so into robotics, although there are cultural reasons why they're into robotics, but they're also into robotics because they've got a rapidly aging population. They haven't got enough younger people to look after the older the older people. China is embracing AI because, again, they are aging very, very rapidly. They're running out of physical infrastructure to build. This is the next thing they could do. And that, I think running out of humans is a fair example but you've got to be careful. I mean, there's that great robotic seal, Paro, I think you've come across that, which is used in care homes. And it's it's got to be quite a lot of machine learning in it. And it kind of responds to how you respond to it. And it's it's a great thing to give somebody with, with dementia. But it's not a great thing to just throw at them and leave them locked in a room with no human contact, I don't think. I think I think it's, to, again, it's, it's around balance. And there needs to be discussion about, is it right to use this? How should we use it? When should we not use it? You know, that, and we are getting into this area where people are worryingly more seduced by simulations of reality than reality itself, where people are worryingly happy to spend more time with machines and fellow human beings. And I, I don't think that's a great reality going forward. And I think we need to start having discussions to challenge that. No, absolutely not. I, I, I smiled when I was reading the book and you mentioned Paro because my my introduction to Paro was in an episode of Master of None. <laughs> which is a, a show within season sorry it's a, a netflix show and i think it's in season one where his um one of his friends his uncle or grandfather dies and he he had a paro and then as they were sort of getting like rid of his his grandfather's stuff or cleaning out his house like, it was kind of like well who's gonna take paro mm. right like who's gonna like, kind of take care take care of paro so i had a big a big laugh when i read that in the book you're you're like okay i'll ask you a question why is it a seal why not a cat or a dog one i think cats and dogs are pets we I'm, this is my guessing i have no clue but i think Cats and dogs are pets we have already, and seals, you wouldn't normally have a seal as a pet, but seals are kind of cute. Now we want to go ahead and get to the drop. And the drop is really our opportunity to share anything at all that we want to with our listeners. This could be a book, a poem, a piece of music. Feel free to share anything that you want. I'll go first as usual. And my drop is a movie that is available here in the United States on Hulu. I always say that because I never know where um, something might be streaming internationally, but it's called Prey. And it is a prequel to the Predator series, which I'm not endorsing just because Predator is a, a pretty cool movie and Predator 2 is, is in many ways better. But Prey is a, a, a really creative and, and cool take on the prequel of the 
of what is the Predator universe. And although there's been some pushback about the 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 main character of the movie and how things go down in the movie, it's a lot of basic fanboy arguing and fighting about something as usual. These people have no idea what's going on, but ignore all that and and definitely check out Prey. It's available um, here in the United States on Hulu, but it can be available on another streaming service internationally. And that's my drop. Richard, you're up. What do you got for us? Oh, God. Oh, God, that's really hard. Okay, if you really push me, I can't give you one. It's it's either 2001 Space Odyssey or it's Matrix. Um, what? There's two favorites. Worst. Wow, that's hard. Um, I'm trying to think of any movie I've walked out of. Um, I struggled with the with the, the sequel of Blade Runner. Was it Blade Runner 2041 or 2042, whatever it was? Yeah, I, I struggled. I've I've never got through the whole of that, but I'm going to persist. So I've never really seen oh the, the original Dune. I struggled with. I've not seen the new one. But I, I find that hard to hard to think of anything. This is again, this is this is like saying, well, who's your favorite child? I mean, it's you know, you can't really I mean, if you really want one, I'll I'll give you one, which I mean, given what we've been talking about, I I've got a couple, but I, I think we'll start with given what we've been talking about, I would recommend Future Shock, which was written in 1970 by Alvin and Heidi Toffler, which is worth reading, you know, 50 years on. Actually, funny if I contributed to a book called Aftershock, which was a sort of revisiting it 50 years on, which which died because the pandemic came along just as it was released. But Future Shock, the, the, the basic premise is of Future Shock is that the perception, imp- important word, the perception of too much change over too short a period of time would create a, a form of sort of mental instability, which I think is is kind of interesting given, given where we are right now. So Future Shock by Alvin and Heidi Toffler, written by his wife as well. She doesn't get enough credit for that. Beyond that, I mean, God, I mean, I think I think I think I really love. I I watched Lawrence of Arabia last night. I love that film. The two most disturbing, but wonderful things I, I I watched on TV over the pandemic. Um, I watched a thing called The Invitation, which is quite dark. I watched Summerland, which was unbelievably dark. I, I'll give you one book, by the way. Just just the worst journey in the world by Apsley Sherry Gerrard. It's about a doomed polar expedition. Nobody's ever heard of it. Cracking book. Oh, the other one. Sorry, this is impossible. You see. There, I've, I've got a friend of mine. We talked about historians earlier on. I have, I have this guy I know quite well, um, Theodore Zeldin, who's a social historian at Oxford. He wrote this amazing book called An Intimate History of Humanity. Um, and he goes and interviews people mainly. It's really, really good. He's a deep, deep thinker. Richard, I really want to thank you for, for joining me on The Deep Dive. This has been a, a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed going back and forth with you. And I want to thank you for, for joining me on the show. Thank you, Philip. I really, I really enjoyed that. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.